I think that they think that, you know, they see the the movie version, which is like some, you're laying down. Mm. There's really little eye contact and the person just, mm, yes, a lot of size, knowing size. Oh, I can only imagine like a lot of aggressive empathy. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Martin a podcast show that pulls back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Mark. Hey everybody, welcome back to another wonderful episode. Today, we're going to talk with another wonderful person, Dr. Sarah Sadik, a psychologist here in New York City, in my backyard. Now, recently we actually had another a psychologist who came to speak about her profession, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, in episode 41. So we're going to start having occasional guests who have similar professions from other guests. And this is meant to provide a different perspective, even though they're in the same profession. Because obviously there are different perspectives, sometimes great, sometimes subtle. And so we're going to talk with Dr. Sarah Sadik, a psychologist. She's going to talk about the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, her hesitancy to become a psychologist in the first place, and a common misconception that she calls aggressive empathy. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Today, we have a wonderful guest. This is uh, Sarah Sadik. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's fantastic to have you. I am so glad you're here. As we had talked about before we started the recording, I was going to ask you to do a quick bio of yourself. So do you think you'd do that? Sure. Um, I am a clinical psychologist here in Manhattan. My office is in Gramercy Park. Um, I went to, I'm from, I'm a transplant. So I grew up in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon. My undergrad is at Portland State University, where I studied biology and psychology. And my graduate program was also in a small town outside of Portland in Newburgh, Oregon, called George Fox University, where I studied a PsyD, a doctor of psychology. And my internship was in Philadelphia in North Philly at Girard Medical Center. And my postdoc was here in New York City under uh, two clinicians in private practice. I want to ask these quick questions just to give a, a little introduction to people about what you do a little bit. Okay, so what exactly is your job title and what do you do? Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice. So I work for myself and I see uh, an adult population and it, very occasionally I'll see some adolescents purely as a favor, because it is definitely not my specialty and not something I love to do. But mostly adults, um, a lot of millennials and people in their 40s um, with basic, you know, emotional dysregulation, people with anxiety disorders or mood disorders, we call them with major depression, or interpersonal distress. And then I also have like a handful of couples therapy that I do on the side. And, you know, we talked about your quick bio at the beginning and how the Mm -hmm you know, how you, you got your degree. Is that the usual steps that people take to achieve your professional degree? 
Sure. So I ended up uh, getting my degree in psychology after studying bio for four years. And mostly I ended up getting the psychology degree through taking a bunch of neuropsych classes because I took more of a science route. So no, I wouldn't say that's the normal route. I think most people just study psychology in undergrad general psych or communications or different types of like humanity type degrees and then apply to get into a doctoral or master's program. Got it. And what is the best part of your profession? I love working with people. I find it really rewarding and humbling to be privy and to sit with people who are in distress and who are going through really vulnerable times in life. And it is really rewarding to see people work on themselves and try to try to enact changes and break up old patterns of behavior and old patterns of thoughts that are so ingrained in us. And it's really wonderful to see people break out of those old habits and challenge themselves and try things differently and get really great results. Sarah, what's the least favorite part of your profession? Hmm. Um, my least favorite part is two twofold. Since I'm in private practice by myself, hmm. I have to do my own billing. Okay. And, and and it is really not in my personality to have to ask people like, hey, did you pay your uh, session? I hate doing that. And so that's probably one of my least favorite parts. And I've learned over the years that I just like send them a shoot, I shoot quick emails. I don't talk about it because it's so awkward, right? Like, hey, how was your day? Also, did you pay <laughs> for session? Like, I cannot, I can't do that. And so- You're going to make that I, transition quite smooth. Yeah, I cannot do it. It's so clunky and awkward and it's so not in my uh, repertoire. It's not my skill set. So now I just send a quick email like, hey, I noticed this. Can you tell me if that I'm wrong? If, am I wrong that you didn't pay? <laughs> so that's probably my, word, my least favorite. And then the other part, which is very, I think, pretty cliche and obvious is we hear a lot of trauma. And um, we can get more into this later if you want. But especially when there's certain things going on kind of in the zeitgeist of the culture, maybe like during like Brett Kavanaugh, when he was going into the Supreme Court and they were talking about sexual uh, misconduct. Mm. During those weeks, those are really tough weeks for psychologists because anybody who has been sexually abused or raped in any way needs to talk about it. And so you go from one session to another Mm. of hearing really, really devastating stories. Um, And sitting with those is really difficult. So there is parts where you hear about suffering. There's days where you might have too many patients who really need to talk about really, really hard issues that happen to them. And one part of you is really humble that they would take their time to talk to you about that. But the other part, it's really hard to sit in human suffering. Finally, misconceptions people have about your profession. Okay. So I think that probably the biggest misconception is that, you know, we're mind readers. And that if you're chatting with us at a party or you're chatting with us at at the soccer field, that we're somehow analyzing you and that we're really interested in picking you apart and figuring out how you click and what you do wrong in life and what your problems are. And I think that that's that mind reader quality where it's like, oh, I should, I need to be guarded around this person because they're going to see through me is a big misconception. I think most psychologists that I know are actually really easygoing and light and want to keep it light and fun. That's awesome. All right. That's very eye-opening. Well, thank you. I'm glad we got that those quick questions out of the way kind of gives a, a nice overview sure. of your profession. All right. So I want to dive deep a little bit more. You know, you talk about helping patients 
and dealing with the different type of patients um, that you take care of in different generations. Sure. What are some of the problems that you typically deal with with these patients? Sure. So ways, depression, anxiety, or or other things. So it, it's kind of a combination of a lot of things, but I would say that in my practice, and it might just be a New York thing, where a lot of people who come in are kind of fit a mold. There's a lot, there's definitely a type that I see, and it's mostly anxiety disorders or people who are suffering from depression. And I see a lot of people at different ages who are people pleasers and who are perfectionists and who have done everything right in life. And they are motivated by a fear of disappointing others. And so I have a lot of really intelligent and high stress professionals that I see. So I have a lot of doctors as patients. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of attorneys as patients. And I have a lot of people in finance. And then I have a few who are like in the creative industries who have all sorts of other issues too. But I see a lot of these, like, I did everything right. I did everything great. I work crazy hours. Look where I got to. I have a family. I have all these boxes checked, but I'm really unhappy. And now I'm having like a panic. I'm having a panic disorder. I had a panic attack at work the other day. Like, What is going on? I did everything right. With your degree, can you give medications out? So I cannot, I cannot. Um, It's definitely our job to refer out. And that's why we work really closely with psychiatrists and sometimes general practitioners. And especially now with COVID um, really exasperating people's symptoms, we see a lot more. I'm more of a, my personal belief is, you know, like if you're having these symptoms of anxiety or you're having symptoms of depression, then that's your body trying to tell you something. You need to change things and mm-hmm. do things differently, or you're deeply unhappy. Like, what do we have to fix and change and shake up so that your body isn't having these big reactions? But when you have times where there's, you can't change, you can't change the house you're living in that you're stuck in all the mm-hmm. time. You can't change your job right now. There's a lot of job insecurity. And so what can you do to kind of bump up that baseline so that you're not experiencing the lows or experiencing these big volatility and emotions? And that's when med management is so important. And so I'm not somebody who's against meds, but I, and probably now in the last year with COVID, I've had to refer a lot more people for med management. There's one thing I asked you about before. You have Mm -hmm. a side D and so you are, you're a psychologist. Yes. But you can also become a psychologist by getting a PhD as well. Right. right. There's and also the psychiatrist, mm-hmm. which is a MD. So how right. could you, in your work, in your mm-hmm. viewpoint, what's the difference between those? So, so a PhD is actually the original psychologist degree, and it was a lot more based in research. And I think that the schools have all evolved to be very similar now. I know PsyD programs are, a PsyD is a doctor of psychology. A PhD is a doctor of philosophy in psychology. And so one used to be a lot more research-based and the PsyD is a Yes, the PhD. And then the PsyD is a lot more clinical. So they throw you into clinical practice right away. And it's a lot more like classes on treatment planning and and psychiatric disorders and what you do specifically to treat them. And so my degree is the PsyD, which is more clinically focused. But I do know that a lot of PhD programs have very similar tracks now, and they too are having the clinical experience. As As a psychiatrist, it's somebody who goes who goes to medical school and then does a postdoc in psychiatry and um, they are responsible for the psychiatric meds. What is your typical day like, Sarah? Start to finish. 
Sure. So pre-COVID versus post-COVID are a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I have two daughters and uh, one is in grade school, one's in middle school. And so one of the benefits of having my own practice is that I get to schedule how I like. So my um, my typical day is I start at say 10 or 10.30 with patient hours. And I go into my office because the nature of our jobs is it's really private mm. and you need really um, intense focus, like hyper-focus when you're in session. Mm-hmm. Um, you So if you hear like, for me, especially if I hear noises outside, like my daughters are making lunch for themselves in the middle of a session, I am 100% distracted. <laughs> so that is like not an option to work at home. I wish it was. Um, and so, and by the way, like no amount of threatening works to get kids to be quiet inside the house. <laughs> yes. No amount. <laughs> no amount. No amount. You're like doing work. Like, uh, I'm I doing would have work, chocolate kids. bars. Yeah. Like, look, this could be yours. If it's silent, all of this could be yours. Or I could take this away and you know, nothing works. And so um, I'm really fortunate in that I have my own office and that it's really, um, safe and it's protected and nobody comes in here and it's like my own. And so I don't have like a health hazard coming into the office. And so I go in, but in my mornings, like I'm with my daughters, I get to get them ready for school. I get to hang out with them. I get to make sure that their day is scheduled and then I head out. But the other piece to that is a lot of psychologists in the city, we work late hours because of the nature of our patients, Mm. right? We have a lot of high functioning, uh, professionals who can't come in the middle of the day. And especially when pre-COVID, like you can't take time off to take the subway to come to my office for an hour and then take the additional time to get back to your office. Nobody has two hours in the middle of their day to come out. So so the majority of us have evening hours. And so pre-COVID, I wouldn't get home until like 9.30 or 10, at least three times a week. So my hours were really... um, complicated, I guess, when it comes to most professionals. And, and I think that especially when you have your own private practice, you, you can't be super rigid and not work evenings. And post COVID, is it similar still? It's, it's a little bit similar, but most people have flexibility because they're not coming into the office and right. The telecommunication has opened that up where they can do a two o'clock in the afternoon session because then they can work a little bit later. They don't have to, to come in, but I do still have evening patients like tonight, I will leave the office. I have like half an hour between my five and five thirty. Like I have a four o'clock. I'll end at five. I'll rush home so that it's not too late, and then do my five thirty, my six thirty, and my seven thirty from home. And I can kind of make sure everybody stays quiet and do that out of the out of the house. Okay. Yeah, got it. We talked about the rewarding part of your job, which is like really kind of um, hearing how people go through their struggles and seeing how they can transform. Mm-hmm. Is there an example of, of a patient that stands out or uh, situations where you've, you've seen that? Yeah, there's a lot. And, you know, it's never, it never looks like this big miracle answer, right? Like, uh, it's like a slow job, moving car crash. So, yes, exactly. But sometimes it's the reverse of a car crash where they yes, avoid the crash. Yes, you might start off with the crash and then kind of see them veer and avoid crashes from then on. And that's our like, yes, we're doing great. And so the majority of, you know, the rewarding, the rewards that we see is like, 
I see a lot of patients in really toxic relationships and people who might be in abusive relationships. And from where they start out with having no self-esteem and really questioning their every single move and watching them come out of those and then slowly regain their self-confidence, slowly regain um, how they communicate with other people and how to advocate for themselves in really small ways. Mm -hmm. And you see this boost in themselves and this light come on in their eyes that was really dark before. So there's little things like that. And then there's, there's the other piece where you work with people who have really severe trauma right? Who have had, and I've worked a lot with, um, with people with really severe sexual trauma, whether that's with long-term molestation to repeat rape and, you know, watching them come out of those fogs and talk about it. And you see through your experience that the more that they talk about it and the more they expose themselves to those painful times that they tried to repress. And the more you see how the human brain works and how the human nature and the human brain is that what's great about it is it gets bored really easily. Mm-hmm. And so what we get to see is that after talking about a bunch of times, your board's like, your brain first has fires, all these cylinders of anxiety. Yeah. Like, I don't want to talk yeah. about this. This is awful. But after a few times, it's like, all right, this is boring. Old news. I don't want to hear about this anymore. And it, and you no longer are triggering all of the emotional responses to those stories and to those memories. And when you sit with patients who have been avoiding these horror stories in their lives and they've repressed and and they've kind of come to this point where they're having panic attacks and they're avoiding real life situations, good, healthy situations, because they can't tolerate any form of distress, seeing them work through it, it's really hard. Like you see how much effort they put in and how much trust they have in you to talk about those horrible things. And the more that they talk about and the more they build up resistance to it and tolerance to that distress and come up with coping skills that work when they're thinking about it or when they're exposed to those things and seeing them work through it and then kind of come out of that and have a lighter, easier life and go and expose themselves to normal social things and put themselves and allow themselves to be more vulnerable with people, have better relationships with people. Those are like really big wins and they don't come that often, but when they do, you're just like, oh, thank God. It's like, it's like water in the desert, you know? Wow. That's great to be there and to be witness to that and also be a part of that as well. You know, I would say based on what you're telling me that I'm kind of changing the question Mm -hmm. here. You would describe work life balances to be pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a work in progress. I think all of us have to kind of figure it out, especially when you work nights and you have children and you have a family and you have a husband. Um, it's it's definitely you have to work out the kinks. I husband found. Take a lot of effort and time. And, oh my and goodness. Great. So much effort and time. You have no idea. Tell me about <laughs> I just want to hear. I don't really know that for sure. Sure, sure. You hear about those things. You've never experienced no, it. Right? Not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, you you make time. So there are a couple days a week that I don't fill up my schedule on purpose. And Mm -hmm. I make sure that I, at least two days a week, I don't have nighttime patients. So I can have dinner. I can make a proper dinner for my kids. I can feel good that they're eating something nutritious and that we have time around the dinner table and we're able to like watch a fun show together and, and bond because I'm really not there two to three nights of the week. Got it. I know at the beginning you talked about people think that you're like a mind reader. Mm hmm. Are there other misconceptions people have about psychologists? Yeah, I think that um, some people have already been to therapy. I think that they think that 
you know, they see the the movie version, which is like some you're laying down. Mm. There's really little eye contact, and the person just, mm, yes, a lot of sighs, knowing sighs. Oh, I can only imagine, like a lot of aggressive empathy. And I think that you know, I think a lot aggressive of aggressive like, empathy, <laughs> like that. All right, do you know what I mean? You know yes, what I mean by yes, aggressive? Yes. Oh my goodness. And people are turned off to that. But the misconception piece would be that you're only going to get the super empathic, you know, only talk therapy. And there's really a lot of therapists out there doing that more collaborative approach, which is like, hey, I'm noticing this pattern of behavior. Like, what's going on here? Let's try to shake this up and disrupt it and do something differently. You know, in terms of the outlook of your profession, Mm -hmm. is the future for psychologists still very fruitful? And and what what is it like? Yeah, I do. I think that there's room, there's room for growth, of course. But yeah, and I think that the, as time goes on, it doesn't have the stigma of going to therapy that the older generations used to have. Mm -hmm. You you need to be a mental case to go see a shrink, you know, nobody has that really anymore. It's kind of like, especially the younger generation, they're so open with their mental health issues. They're like, oh, I'm in a depressive episode, you know, or like, oh, I feel I'm like, I'm, I may be bipolar. They diagnose themselves. They're so open. I'm really having a hard time. They're so, you know, and it's good. And I think that it's going to open the, you know, like the door for normal people to start going to therapy. And again, therapy doesn't have to be long-term. It's not this thing that you have to be in because you have mental disease. It can just be for six weeks. It can be for half a year. It can be to get you over a hump. And I think it's just more approachable now as, as time goes on. What type of students would best flourish in this profession? So I think that um, a lot of different types of students would flourish, but I think that like people just need to be honest with themselves. Like, do you get exhausted when you talk to too many people? You know, there's like certain things about your own personality that you need. Yes. Really simple. Like know your own motivations. If you are going into the field because you have some narcissistic tendencies and you like the idea of people coming to you with their problems, like, that's not going to lend to a fruitful career. People are going to feel this weird hierarchy between you and them. And you're going to find roadblocks as you move forward. But if you're going to the field because you really do have a passion to talk to people and you've noticed that interpersonally, it's easy for you to relate to people and it's easy for you to sit in people's discomfort and not try to jump to fixing it or or not tolerate people who whine too much. Kind of be honest with yourself. Like, what kind of person are you? Are you really, do you love the interpersonal connection? And I think that, especially in the clinical side, to be fruitful in this career, people have to know that you're genuine. And if you're faking it, it's really easy to tell. And so I guess I guess I can say like a lot of different times, you don't have to be the super social butterfly who's the center of attention to be in this field. But if you're somebody who really enjoys talking to people and hearing their stories and, and collecting data on them, you know, like mining for data of how they behave in this situation, how they behave in there and really finding it interesting, you will do really well. You will do well. And in the end, there is something really healing in the interpersonal connection of sitting with somebody else and um, being witness to their suffering and to their pain and validating it. And if and you have to kind of be honest with yourself. Like, are you somebody who enjoys doing that? So were you one of those kind of people early on in high school where you like to hear from other people and <laughs> listen to other people? How so I'm like you a- as a high school student? 
So um, I have a really, I have kind of a weird story when it comes to, and I've told you a little bit about this, why uh-huh. it's kind of apprehensive to coming on the show and telling you the story. I have this weird relationship, like a love-hate relationship with psychology in that I didn't want to be a therapist. And I was told all my life, you need to be a therapist. Like, I think you should be a psychologist. I was like, no. Yeah. Wait, as a high school student, you were told that you would do well as a, as a therapist? Yeah, even younger. It was weird. And so I worked, so I worked all through high school and I, so I worked What do you mean you worked all through high school? Like as a side, my side jobs. I always had like a job on top of going to school. And so I remember working at like, I worked as a bank teller and I also worked at a Bed Bath & Beyond type store where you would do home furnishings and candles and towels. This is in high school. I always, I worked since I was 14. Got it. And I would have strangers come up to me and say, ask me about a towel. And I talked to them. And then within five minutes, they would tell me that they had an abortion and that they're having a really hard time that week. (laughs) I was a magnet. Like, I don't know. I still don't know why. (laughs) I was always a magnet. I worked as a teller. People would come in there like, I'm going through a really terrible divorce. And I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't know what to do with it, but I just said, oh my God, I'm really sorry. Is there anything I can do? You know? And, And so my friends, my family, everyone was like, what is going on with you? Even in undergrad or when I'd be at a bar, we'd be talking to people. And within a very short amount of time, I would know about somebody's sexual abuse history. And I'm not kidding. I would not ask about it. And my friends who are with me are like, what is going on? This is crazy. This is insane. (laughs) So I don't know what it was, but (laughs) there was always this weird quality in that I would just ask questions and then people would open up and answer them. And so as a high school student, I had people that I really was not close with. I was not friends with and, and, and come up to me and tell me really intense things about themselves Mm -hmm. with, with whether it was sexual history to maybe being gay or, um, having abuse at home and I was not friends with them. They would just come and Nor were you in trained me. in how to deal with No, that. no. And oh my God, that was always a big thing. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I would just sit in it and just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. Sarah, I want to change the, the dynamic, the mm-hmm. uh, little questions, if you will. I want to jump into my rapid fire questions. Sure. You ready? Yeah, All right. I'm ready. <laughs> Favorite type of books to read? Um, my favorite book in the world is Pride and Prejudice, and I read it once or twice a year. And I think that every psychological condition and personality can be found in the characters of that book. (laughs) Favorite flower? Um, I love a, like a a hearty white long stemmed rose, like a thick, you know. Gotta make sure your husband knows that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) most important in a partner, intelligent or funny? Oh, funny, funny for sure. I think that life throws a lot of difficult things at you. And if you don't have humor, it is Mm. so difficult to navigate this world. Sarah, what's your favorite season? Fall. What comes easily for you that is more difficult for other people? Um, I think I have a really high tolerance to human suffering. And I think I can sit and listen and absorb really, really traumatic details of people's lives. And it is something that is like a natural born skill set. If you were really hungry, would you eat a bug? Oh, yeah, for sure. 100%. And finally, if you were 80 years old, what would you tell your children about life and about business that would be the most important thing for them to know to get a head start? 
Um, I would tell them that uh, we are relational creatures and the most important thing is community and interpersonal relationships. That is number one. So you can have a great job, like definitely get a job where you can be self-reliant and depend on yourself and you don't have to depend on other people and you can get the things that you need. But the things that really matter in life are the connections that we have with others. And that doesn't mean that you have a support system that you can rely on. It means that you are regularly inconvenienced by the people that you love and do not make your life tailor-made for your comfort. Have it be where you're constantly making sacrifices for other people and and where you, when you do have moments to yourself, you really enjoy them and love them and like relish and are grateful for them. But make sure that the community that you find, you can depend on them, but just as importantly, they can depend on you and you establish yourself as somebody who's reliable and strong enough where people can depend on you. That's some deep stuff. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Uh, I didn't mean it to be. (laughs) I love it. Um, Sarah, where can listeners go to reach you and learn more about you? Um, Probably my website. It's simple. It's just Dr. Dr. Sarah Sadek. So D-R-S-A-R-A-S-A-D-E-K.com. Dot com. All right. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Sarah, it was wonderful. Really wonderful to hear about your profession and how you got there. And thank you you for opening up and sharing that with us. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to speak to you. All right, everybody. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmar.com or hcwithdrmar.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, Add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard Marn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.